some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs their attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. I definitely felt pressure, and I also felt like I remember getting there and and being told, you know, a lot of people wanted this job. No, I'm going to get this party started, Rainbow. All right, DJ Mandy Walsh, do, do your thing. So you actually were part of the Big Bang Theory's original pilot. Oh, my yeah. God, Amanda. Tell me <laughs> what happened. <laughs> this is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into another episode of my reinvention of the VJ podcast. So what are the chances that two much music VJs are both from the same tiny town in Quebec? Chances are pretty good. My guest today grew up in Hudson, Quebec, a quaint town 40 minutes west of Montreal. She attended Hudson High School and legend has it, she was discovered working as a small town waitress, landing a job on Much Music and eventually headed to LA to make it big in showbiz. Sounds a little like a John Cougar song, right? <laughs> My guest today is the charming and quirky Amanda Walsh. As for who the other VJ to hell from Hudson was, it was me. Before I compare notes with Amanda about life in Hudson and life on much music, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you a, just a bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ is my unscripted, up-close, and personal conversations with the eclectic and much-loved on-air hosts that you may have grown up with on much music. Some I work closely with, others, like Amanda, were way after my time. And while our personalities and our approaches were often very different, there is one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most, most influential pop culture platform. And then we left at different times for different reasons. Each of us headed off on our next adventures. But it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, the luck, the creativity, the struggle, and the perspective that really intrigues me. So listen, I'm making this show for you. Yes, my conversation with Amanda will probably be a trip down memory lane, but I'm also hoping that you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to get what you want in life, to reinvent, to inspire creativity, to deal with tough times, and maybe even redefine what success is for you. Ultimately, I hope to inspire you to look at your life differently in some how. And for me, this is a passion project. For the last 14 years, I've been running one of Canada's largest platforms for moms. It's called YMC.ca. And really connecting moms with brands has been my business. But guys, 14 years, that's a long time. So. I'm also hoping that this show will give me some food for thought while I consider what the next chapter of my life could look like. And speaking of moms, from her home in LA, nine months pregnant and ready to pop, <laughs> welcome Amanda Walsh to Reinvention of the VJ Podcast. How are you? Hi, Erica. I'm, I'm good. I'm very happy to be 
talking to an adult. <laughs> I get that. And also, <laughs> I understand that we almost didn't have this conversation because you literally could go into labor at any moment. Yes, <laughs> I'm, in, uh, I'm in that window, that zone right now. I, I remember it well, but you and I are on completely different timelines because ironic, we're actually 20 years apart. So 20 years ago, almost to the day, my son was born. Oh, wow. So he's 20 years and you started on Much Music I think it's 15 years after I, 16 years after I left. So there's like a 20 year age gap between the two of us. And so this is going to be a really great conversation because <laughs> we have so much in common and yet so much different, which is what makes a conversation interesting, don't you think? Oh, yeah, definitely. So you grew up in Rigo. Okay, seriously? Yeah. My daddy still lives in Rigo. <laughs> my parents are there too. So where do they live? Um, up on the mountain. Yeah. In the, in the forest. <laughs> so does my dad. My dad. Really? Lives, yeah. He lives right across from the polo club. Do you know where that is? Oh, uh, yes. Yes, I do. So, yes. so we still have parents that live just outside of Hudson. You grew up and went to Hudson high school. Is that right? Yes. I went to Hudson high school. I worked at the grocery store at the local IGA in Hudson. Uh, I, is that the Poirier family on that? Yes. It's another family now, but it was Poirier forever. I, I used to hang out with Mark Poirier. Oh, this, <laughs> I know. Seriously. We have, honestly, we probably know so many of the same people. I have a question for you, actually. Yes. My math teacher's name was Mr. Walsh. Hudson Walsh? No, yep. I don't know if he was a teacher. Was was he a teacher? It's not related. We're not related. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> like, was it your dad or something? <laughs> no. Okay. No, okay. We, we moved there around when I was 11 or okay. so. Okay. That's when, when I moved there, there too. Oh. Exactly when we used to live downtown Montreal. And my dad decided that he wanted to get into riding full time. And so he moved my family to Hudson from downtown Montreal. And we basically bought the farm. And uh, we used to, I used to have to shovel shit every day oh after school. And then I shovel shit on much music in a different way. So <laughs> I know that's an old joke, but I still pull it out it whenever I works. can. Yeah. It still works. Yeah, I think it was a really a good place to be a teenager because it was kind of a softer place than we were on the West Island before. Um, but I'm really grateful for getting to grow up there. So when I went to Hudson High School, which was very small when I grew up there, I think 600 kids from grade mm -hmm. one to 11, right? Because they're CJEP after. Um, there were no extracurricular classes. There was no drama. There were no arts. It was very bare bones. And so I ended up directing theater and the plays, honestly, in Hudson. So I directed the play Grease, for example. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So what about you? When you grew up in Hudson, you were already the artsy kid who wanted to perform. Mm -hmm. What kind of opportunities were there for you in Hudson? It's funny you say that because in elementary, in sixth grade, um, I directed, I wrote and directed the school play at my <sighs> elementary school because we didn't have one there. But then when I went to Hudson High, there were, I, I got a piece of advice right before going in from this day camp counselor at the day camp in Hudson, who was just like, you know, get involved. And then I really took that to heart and basically joined everything. Um, 
But yeah, there was the school play that I did every year and the paper and the, you know, I was in the band. Oh, it was, yeah, I did everything. <laughs> if you look through the yearbook, I'm just like in every picture. I ran the yearbook at my okay. CJEP. Honestly, <laughs> well, I guess there is a certain type of person. This is going to be an interesting conversation. I think we'll find a lot of similarities. Um, tell me about you were waitressing. This is the legend, the myth of <laughs> Amanda. You were waitressing and you were discovered. Like what really happened? So I was, um, yes, I was, I'd come back from traveling and was waiting to start university and taking any odd jobs I could. And I remember going in to the, the Chateau du Lac, which if you're from Hudson, you know, or we call it the Chat. Uh -huh. This is Erica Mimes, the picking up a drink and guzzling it, putting drink down, guzzling it. Yes. Yes. Um, and I remember sitting and the bartender was there and, and I had just, and I said, oh, can I have a job? Kind of joking around. I was like, this is my only $5. And then he said, well, we need a waitress to start next week. So you I waitress at Chateau du Lac? Yes. Holy moly. <laughs> Which was not necessary. I had a really good time and I would do, I think, I was still working, I think I was doing data entry downtown. I'd take the train back to Hudson, do one or two shifts a week at the chat. And um, not my, I was not like a big partier person. I had a great time and working at the chat was like, you'd be like, hey, I'm just gonna go dance for a bit on the dance floor and then ask around, does anyone need anything? And then keep hanging out. It was, it was, it was fun. Um, and one night about a month or two into the job, I was walking by a table and when I walked by, you know, it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone pretty mm -hmm. much. And one of the guys said to another guy, he said, oh, you know, Amanda's an actress. Because coming up through my teen years, I was, I would audition for stuff that was shooting in Montreal and occasionally get things. I kind of was like a struggling child actor. It never took me out of my life very much, but I was in the union and doing things here and there. So I stopped to say hi and the guy was like oh I work in tv in Toronto and was also from Hudson and he said you know you're they're probably not looking for anyone but my boss always says if we ever see anyone we think would be good encourage them to send a tape in and he gave me his card and he worked in graphics for much more music so and I remember going back to my friend's house where I was having a sleepover that night and being like a business card whoa <laughs> Um, and then I, I called and they said, you know, we're not really looking for anyone, but you can always send a tape if you want. So I focused in on just making, I was already into making movies with my friends and improv and sketch. So I just, I found a friend of a friend who had a camera and we put together this tape and I sent it in with really my only goal was not to be embarrassed and send something that I was proud of. Um, because as having been an actor for even a short amount of time, I'd already gotten used to you send these things off and who knows. And then about a week later, they called and they were like, were those your ideas? We want you to come to Toronto. And then I went to Toronto for about a week's, it was almost like a little boot camp, like a week's worth of mock shifts and sending me out on the street to talk with people and that kind of thing. What was on this demo tape that got you a call back when they weren't actually looking for someone? Um, I think so. Okay. So one of the things they had said was 
you know, throw to these videos. So do like five different throws or three different throws and then do whatever you want. So I think for each throw or introduction to the video, um, I did one that was more straight, but then the rest of them were, I think one was for Destiny Child Survivor. So I did, I said, you know, not a lot of people know this, but I actually auditioned for that. Oh, we do have a clip of my tape. And then I cut to like a silly, goofy thing of me doing a terrible audition. So you were doing, you sort of played roles, you played characters. Yeah, yeah, I did. And then I did a thing at the end, it was like an instructional video of how to pretend you know about music when you don't, but it was all black and white, kind of like a 50s instructional video. So yeah, I was um, playing characters and turned it into sketches. And yeah, I, ha I had a lot of fun with it. Wow, um, that's, that's so cool. And so they, do you think that your ability to create sketches and your I guess understanding of humor and character was what pulled them towards you? I think so, because that was something that they kept check like they were like, those were, you know, you thought of those things and and that kind of was my strength, I guess, on the job, as it were. Um so I, I do think that that's probably what, what got me in there. But Amanda, you didn't know about music? Um, I knew some about music. I was 19. I grew up in Hudson. And I kind of, well, not that you can't know about music growing up, but for me, my growing up was like, I wasn't a music file and I wasn't a pop culture file. A lot of my childhood, we moved around. I didn't have a television. Um, I kind of was in my own like creative drawn to what I thought was funny and interesting. And I liked, you know, the bands I liked as a teenager. And I, I also liked a lot of big band music. Like I had an appreciation for music. I was in the music program at school, but I wasn't coming into it as someone who just like knew this vast amount of music history. I mean, I don't know if a lot of kids that age know those things, but I certainly didn't. And I remember when they interviewed me, they were like, and so what are your favorite, some of your favorite websites? And this was in 2001. So I, I guess like not a lot of people were online, but I was probably on the, I said Hotmail and uh, the Air Canada website to look for travel deals because I had just come back from traveling. So I was not presenting as a, uh, I will lead the way and be a pop culture trendsetter person. So you were called in for that week-long audition. Now we know how it ended, is that you eventually got the job. Did they give you the job right after the end of the week or what happened? Nope, they said, we'll let you know either way in a week. And, and who is back. this? Who is this, by the way? Who's they? Was it David Kynes, Denise Donlin, Sheila? Who was it? It was, it was Sheila, it was David Kynes, it was Tanya Nachev, mm -hmm. and it was Neil State. Um, so it was them. Cool. And they said, we'll let you know. And then, and having been there in the environment and seeing like what you could do and you could book an edit bay and sit with an editor and book a camera and just make all this stuff. I already wanted the job, but going there, I, then I really wanted it. And so um, they called you a week later and said? They called me, well, they called my house. I wasn't home because I was having a sleepover at my <laughs> friend's house. So then they had to call me there. And You're such a said, kid. You were such a kid. I know. <laughs> I know. That's the craziest part of it. And they said, uh, yeah, we want to offer you a job. And can you be here next week? So I just up and moved. My parents drove me to Toronto. 
And, uh, and then a week after I got there, I started on air. Okay. So there's, there's a bit of a, uh, a, a space that you kind of, uh, jump over, which is a week later, <laughs> this 19 year old girl who was pretty sheltered growing up in Hudson, hanging out at her girlfriend's, having sleepovers, a teenager, still young, is being driven by her parents to Toronto. Where did you live? <laughs> they uh, put me up in a, an executive apartment a couple blocks from the station that my best friend and I called the lonely businessman because it felt like, you know, it was a furnished rental. And I was told I had the job for three months probation so I had this apartment for three months. And then if they wanted to extend me, then I'd have to find my own place to live. So how did, so you did, obviously. And uh, yeah. how did you find, you're 19, I'm sorry, but my son <laughs> is 20. So <laughs> I am feeling this right now. You're 19 yeah. years old. You're living in the big city of Toronto. How did you find an apartment? What, what was that process like? So, um, yeah, those first few months were, were really, were difficult um, yeah. for me. Um, I had no, fr I didn't really have friends. I would be on air and then go back and sit at my desk and email my best friend who was starting at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going on in a minute. Like, and she'd be like, I'm going to go watch you. And I do something <laughs> on air. Like, and then I go back to my desk. Cause I just was so, you know, everyone was older than me. I remember writing in my diary, like, I just wish I was 26. Like I felt kind of, <gasps> Um, there was a big learning curve at first. And then, um, and then in terms of finding a place, my, um, he actually been my first boyfriend who was then in Toronto studying theater, needed a roommate. So I, we became roommates for a oh, while. Oh, that's lucky. Yes. And then a, about a little while after that, I had made friends with one of the, um, one of the other employees at Much Music. She was so kind and knew it was my birthday and I didn't have anyone to celebrate with and invited me out with her and her friends. And we became friends. And then about like six months after that, her roommate moved out. So I lived with her Wow! and another girlfriend. Yeah. That's, a, that's a huge life change. And I remember <laughs> the first day when I started on Much Music, I was 23. I started working at Much Music when I was 21, I think. And I worked behind the scenes for three years. So imagine this. I had already worked there for three years. You know what it's like being at the desk. You're already part of the, the action, right? Yeah. But there is something different when you're given the role, the on-camera role. And at the beginning, it's not a big deal because you can't fathom the fact that people are watching you. But something went off in my head once when I saw people staring at me walking down the street and I was like, oh my God, people are watching. <laughs> and then, I don't know, I just found it, there was huge pressure on me, huge. What about you? Did you feel pressure when you first started? Yes, I felt, um, I felt like my voice went up like five octaves and my shoulders were like this. And it was just really hard. Like my body just kind of locked up for a bit at the beginning and people, you know, I, I guess I managed cause they kept me around. <laughs> but I, I remember that feeling of, you know, just be yourself. And you're kind of like, okay. And you're getting used to talking into this camera and finding your feet. Um, I definitely felt pressure. And I also felt like I remember getting there and, and being told 
you know, a lot of people wanted this job. And I, I kind of hadn't thought of it in that way at the time. And then I was all of a sudden plunked in this place. So I felt, I actually felt more pressure for me of wanting the people I worked with to like me or think that I was deserving of this position. Um, and it was still not quite sinking in that people at home were all, there were all these other people too. I was always just as if I was talking to my friend who was starting university. And then when did it really smack you in the face that you had a national audience who are watching every move that you made for four hours a day? Um, there were kind of, there's kind of two moments. Um, one, I mean, a smack in the face would be, there was this show called Go With The Flow, where it was like, you're kind of half online and half introducing videos and there's a chat room going at the same time. And I didn't know about chat rooms and things like that. And somehow I found out about it and I went and looked and people had posted um, like what they thought of me and there were, you know, there could be anything in those things. And I was, that was a smack in the face for me because it wasn't the nicest. <laughs> and I remember uh, just being kind of just shell-shocked and devastated by people having these opinions and you're like, they don't know me. It was a really, it was a big learning moment. And I remember going back to my lonely businessman apartment and just crying. And then finally hitting a point of being like, oh, wait, it did like I came out of it and I was like, none of those things really changed. Like, I'm still me. I'm still here right now. Does that does that make sense? So of course, it was a good learning moment. And I was like, OK. And then I started having some interactions, too, that I felt like were like sent from the universe or something to reaffirm that for me, where people would come. Someone come up to me and said he was like, you know, when you first started, I didn't like you. Um, and I'm like, OK. And he's like, and then one day, he's like, I didn't like you because, you know, I was, he's like, you want to know why? And I was like, yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> and he was like, all my life, I've hated my nose. And I turned on the TV and there was someone with a nose like my nose. And like, our noses actually were completely different. But it was such a glaring, like, you're like, oh, nothing is actually about you. So it was a really big lesson to get at a young age that I'm grateful to get to have yep. gotten. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, yeah. So how did you prepare for your shows? And I ask this because back in the olden days, which would be my time, mm -hmm. there was no internet. I look at your shock and your shoe was like, what? But yeah. <laughs> think about it. We were on air or I was on air in 1985. And in 1985, the internet was just starting. It wasn't, there, there wasn't a lot of stuff on the internet. There, the Google thing was, was novel. It wasn't well populated. So every day, Craig Halkett would give me my show mm -hmm. and then I would have to go through the files. I would go across the street to the bookstore and I would look on the racks at much for any magazines and I would drag these heavy bags filled with potential research to write my show. What was your experience like? Um, there's some similarities, although it did have the internet, so that was very helpful. Um, so not quite as many bags, but I definitely was heavy into the research because I was operating from a place of, it was a gift, but because I felt like I never knew 
as much because I was younger and I was really worried about not knowing enough. If I had to interview a band, I'd go down to the library and pull every interview they'd ever done and all their press stuff and just watch. Like I just, and if they referenced something I didn't know about, then I'd go research that. So it made me a bit better at my job, but I definitely would lean heavily on as much research as I could do. But yeah, the internet was helpful. <laughs> and doing interviews, the art of interviews is something that is learned. It's you, you, you could, someone could teach you, you could take a journalism class, but to actually do it on live TV is a whole different ball game, especially when you're 19 and you don't have a lot of life experience, right? Yeah. So tell me about your, the process of learning how to interview and how, how you developed your own style. Yeah, I think I definitely um, started out trying to do what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, that didn't really work for me. I was nervous about seeming so young uh, I remember wearing glasses. My, I wore glasses. They were prescriptions. <laughs> but I remember, you know, making those choices to try and be taken more seriously. Mm. And I think that it was really when I um, started to ask things that I was genuinely interested in that it clicked more for me. Mm. Um, because at the beginning, I was kind of, you know, trying to model what I thought I should be asking about. But I remember interviewing silver chair and being warned that they were going to be this notoriously difficult interview. So I doubled down on watching everything I could. And at one point I remember Daniel Johns talked about how he has this, it's called synesthesia, I think is the word, but he sees colors when he hears music, like the senses cross. And that popped out to me so much more than the talk about, you know, influences and the more industry talk. So I focused in on that and brought that up and the interview just, blossomed and it was a really good affirmation that if I actually followed what what I was curious about that was okay. Hi well you use the word curious and I think that's if there's one thing that um, I've learned I guess about interviewing is that you need to be curious mm -hmm. so that yeah. you're actually asking questions that you want to know the answers to. Yeah and that I think a part of me was because we're on a music station and we're interviewing musicians and of course you're going to be talking about the music I felt like okay do all the questions need to be about that but then so many of those questions have been asked and what I'm actually more interested in is kind of the person underneath this and the artist and the stuff so I had finding that it was okay to ask those kind of questions um, is when it got easier for me. You said something that struck me I interviewed do you know who Teresa Roncon is? Yeah. She was one of the hosts before you, more my time. She hosted the Power Hour at the time or the Power 30. And she also did City Pulse Entertainment at the same time. Very pretty, much like you. Blonde, big eyes, you know, very attractive in a sort of a classical way. And she said that she struggled a lot to be taken seriously. And your comment about wanting to wear glasses <laughs> seems to me similar. And do you think that it's more, was it, has it been, and will it always be more challenging for women who are attractive to be taken seriously? Or is it because you were young? I don't know. I, I felt it was just, I never thought of it as an attractiveness thing. For me, it was just because I was young and felt like I looked even younger and 
came across even younger. <laughs> I had a little voice and that's where I was definitely coming from. But I guess people make assumptions. It's sort of a natural thing to do. So it was always when I could, I leaned on my sense of humor. And when I could connect with a band on that level, things would usually shift for me. But um, I, I felt like it was, I was always coming in with a bit of an uphill climb at the beginning of an interview. I definitely felt the same when I started, but I did it for 10 years. So I, I learned on the job. Also, yeah. the difference for me was that I was considered part of the, the trailblazers. So what I mean is the first people to do a job that had never kind of been done before, which is interviewing bands in these chaotic environments, you know, with um, no guidelines or rails to protect us or keep us safe. And you kind of did, is that you had all those tapes to look at before. So you had a sort of a, a leg up on me in, in some way. Um, but do you feel like you were compared to the group that had gone before you? Or was the audience now your peers and the past was irrelevant? That's interesting. I think it was kind of a bit of both because within within much music, I think that was always comparison because so many people worked there for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and then it would just depend on the age of the viewers. I kind of had a mix, um, mm -hmm. but I, I definitely felt once I hit my stride, I felt very connected um, to the audience and to my other VJs, that, my peers that I was on there with. Yeah, okay, so tell me who, who were your cohort at that time? Um, Bradford Howe. Um, we sat right next to each other and goofed off a lot. And that will always be the cherished memories to me. Mm -hmm. um, George Strombolopoulos, Hannah Sung, Namageni, um, Jen Hollett, Rick Campanelli, Rainbow, Sun Franks. Hope I'm not missing anyone. Those were our main, that was our main. And then I think Devin started just as I was leaving. And do you, Sarah started as I was leaving too. Do you still keep in touch with those people or are they... Um, because you left town and then moved to LA to start a new life. Uh, are those people in your life, not in your life? What's the relationship like? We're in loose touch. Like I will, um, yeah, occasionally, it's been a while since I've seen George, but we, we would like often have brunch when he was in LA or, um, you know, I'd see Hannah if I was in town or Jen, if I'm in the same city where they are and it works out, I'd still reach out and uh, reconnect. There is a undeniable bond between really all of us, even mm -hmm. you and I who have 20 years separating us, where we were part of something that was bigger than all of us. Um, could you speak a little bit about what your time at Much Music meant to you? Um, yeah, it was a really, once I got over those first three months, it was a really um, affirming fun um place that that I felt like I remember when I went for my interview and sitting there and I the other VJs were around and they were just joking around and I had this feeling of like these are my people like I know I connect with these people I'm too shy to even speak right now but like if only I could just uh, and <laughs> and then when I did I was like I feel like we'd be friends and then we did become friends and um, I think my time there was just 
that getting over that learning curve was a huge growth for me. And then experiencing the feeling of clicking into what, when you're on camera and that was me being myself, it's, you know, it's your on camera self, but it was totally me and what I thought was funny and my responses and, and feeling like that's embraced and your instincts are for the most part good. Like it was really a confidence building in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And it was also a whirlwind. There's so much that happened that I don't remember. I, you know, I found like press or flyers of an award show I hosted. I've known, I'm like, what did I do? Cause it was just go, go, go with all the traveling and the, sometimes it feels like it was a fever dream that happened. For me, honestly, I'm going to tell you something. I have the exact same issue. Now I was on air for a decade and I honestly can't remember probably 82% of it. I can't remember. And I was thinking, I was trying to understand, I was like this, I, I began to understand this when Christopher Ward interviewed me for his book, Is This Live? Which was a recounting of the early days of much music. And he'd asked me questions and I was like, I don't remember. And I said, I'm not trying to be difficult. I literally cannot remember. And so I was trying to understand what is the challenge? Why can't I? And so I'm going to throw this out to you and tell me what you think. Mm. To me, because the office and the whole time was so chaotic and intense and a pressure that no one really acknowledged, that I had to be so in the freaking moment at all times. Those four hours that I was on air as well as the time around it where I was focusing on inhaling the information so that I can present it the following day because it was like in and out, right? Because the shows were so fast that I had no more room for memory because I was so in the moment. How do you remember something that you're, you can't remember? How can you, how can you, I know this is a weird thing to say, but how can you remember something if all you could think about is the next two seconds that are going to happen? Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? 100%. That is you. I think you nailed it. That's exactly what it was. It was, you're just going from moment to moment to moment to moment. And it is so intense that it's, it's an exhilarating and freeing and you're living in this energy all the time then when you come out of it you're like what did I do what is <laughs> yeah, yeah I can't remember and so it's always fun for me to look back at at old videos thank god for YouTube because <laughs> there's a lot of my old videos and I was like whoa that was a good question well I still think the same way right <laughs> yeah, so yeah you're like oh I, I was me <laughs> so why did you leave much music Um, I left much music because I'd always, I'd been an actor before getting the opportunity to work at much music. And that had always continued to be what was in my heart, even though I loved hosting and I still like elements of hosting. Um, So I sort of told myself I wasn't going to stay for really long because I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to go after acting again if I stayed for too long. That being said, it was a difficult choice because, um, you know, when they say don't quit your day job, it usually it doesn't mean you have an amazing day job. <laughs> so I was coming up, I was, I was there a little over three years and I had started to make some contacts um, 
in Los Angeles and I'd started to send auditions down and I'd gotten close on a few things. So I felt like it was the t- like it was kind of a now or never. Otherwise I would be so I would I would have stayed because it was a great opportunity. And then the other side of it was I felt like I mean, there was so much more I could have learned, but I felt like I had learned what I needed to learn. And I also felt like some of the content, it's not the reason I left at all, but I was like, oh, things were shifting. It was becoming more celebrity culture. And I was like, it's not really my passion to talk about, you know, tabloid stuff and those kinds of things. Like that's what I liked was the other, the silly side stuff we got to do and which we still did, but I just felt like I was never my, I was never someone who was like about, I don't know, looking cool and talking about, uh, (laughs) you know, the hottest celebs. I I just didn't want to be putting more of that into the world because it's not where my heart was, but no, no judgment to, you know, people who clicked with it. I just wasn't interested in it. A lot of people say that what you just expressed was the beginning of the end of much music. Yeah. I could see that. I mean, I certainly didn't leave for that reason. It was just made it easier to leave. Right. That makes sense. So you headed off to LA. Now you've already done this once, almost three years earlier, going to yes. a city uh, where you had next to no friends. But I wonder, was there, <laughs> did you find uh, a group of Canadian expats, actors who had already set up shop down there? Is that, how do you survive? As a wannabe actor, it's it's uh, not the warmest when I, not warmest. It's not the friendliest place. Yeah, and it was you know it was an interesting one thing. Having done it before in Toronto taught me at a young age that like this might be hard, but then it will get easier, mm. and it might take a year. So like just know that going in. So I already knew that because I'd had that experience, and um, I what I kind of did is my last year at much I would almost like dipping my toe in LA. I came down for, I would save up all my vacation time, come here and just audition for those weeks. Um, Then when I did leave, I came down and um, stayed in a hotel where all these other Canadians stayed. So that was kind of a welcoming environment. And then when that time was up, I was set to go back to Toronto again. And right on like the last day, I got a, a role in a movie that filmed in Winnipeg. So I went to Winnipeg and then after that, the, my agents down here were like, you should come back. There's some roles, you know, there's a bunch of stuff coming up. And I was like, I, I can't, like, I didn't even think I could, like, afford it. Like, I'm, like, I don't know, I'm tired out. Like, this has been really intense. And then um, I had one friend and who offered I could stay on his couch. I came back and stayed on his couch. And then I ended up getting a job that got me a work visa to be here. And then I just have been here on different jobs. But... Um, yeah, so it was a lot of back and forth and I didn't know, again, it was a similar, like I knew one or two people, but I certainly didn't have a group of friends at all. When you got the job on much music, it was kind of like a Cinderella story in a way, right? Like it, it happened, you did the work, you made the demo tape, you showed up, you did, you made it happen. So I am not for a second saying you didn't earn it but it was kind of one of those weird things where you get spotted, they say, do a tape, you do the tape, you go do the thing and you get picked within a week. You're on live national television, dream job that people as they had 
not very nicely told you, remind <laughs> you that many people wanted. <laughs> then you move to LA and you have to freaking work for every single job. You're back to almost the beginning again. Yep. Doing pilot after pilot that, that doesn't go. Yeah. And even just getting to do a pilot was because, and I think, you know, I'm grateful for it. It's an interesting thing to go through being um, when you're on TV and recognized and known, you're treated with a certain level of, you know, it's not about being super famous, but it's just, if you were to go into a room, you're given time, you're just given like that space and that time and that recognition. Mm -hmm. And then to go leave that space and go back to being anonymous again as an artist trying to work your way up it I'm grateful for it because it it took away not that I was really affected anyway but I almost am like everyone should have to do this because it really any illusions of fame or being known or just are it's really shown for what it is Mm -hmm. so I had to yeah start over and nobody you know I was lucky to have an agent and I got that I'm having been how much music. And I know that that is not something that is easy to get either. So I recognize um, the leg up I had in that respect, but going into auditions and all that stuff, it was just, I was just anyone. Interesting. So yeah. you actually were part of the Big Bang Theory's original pilot. Oh my yeah. God, Amanda, tell me <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I mean, there's not a ton to tell. It was, um, I believe there was, you know, in a pilot situation, it's pressure cooker and they're really trying to find the show. And at that point, the show was different than the show that ended up on air. There were a few other characters that also aren't on the show. I believe there was another actress before me that I was brought in and the character was a different character. And uh, yeah, it was an intense week. So close. You were so close. Yeah. Now, someone posted that episode on YouTube for all to see. (laughs) And what was your character's name? Um, Katie. Yes, Katie. You were so good in the blackboard scene. That was my favorite scene. That was definitely my favorite. You were so good. So has that uh, failed pilot for you been beneficial in other ways? Um, I think, you know, I had a good, I I made really good contacts with the creators of that show. So I've seen them, um, you know, when I did another part on Two and a Half Men, so it was also for Chuck Lorre and those casting directors know me. And um, so it was beneficial in those ways. It was all positive. Um, And certainly it's a good, show to be associated with um yeah <laughs> yeah so it has it it has you know and then if anything also it's given me my like a, a good hollywood story <laughs> <laughs> yeah. every actress needs a, a hollywood story but if i did it yeah i did another pilot with um jim burroughs who directed that pilot and he was just like he they cast me in another pilot and he was just like, remind me to tell you about Lisa Kudrow because she had been, she had done the pilot for Frasier and then they've made changes. So, yeah. So it just sort of puts you into the whole, uh, the Hollywood, <laughs> the Hollywood history of it all. All right. Well, you're able to laugh it off to a certain degree, but I do know that there are opportunities that we're presented with 
It could be on camera. It could be landing a new job. It could be building a business, whatever it is. But it's when it is so close, you can taste it. And then it's mm -hmm. yanked from you. <laughs> How do you, what is the psychology? How do you cope with it, deal with the obvious disappointments that are inevitable in the business that you're in? I guess you just, I, now having been in it for so long, you learn, um, you get some perspective on what you may have seen as an opportunity. You don't know what not getting this thing or this thing not working out actually freed you up to do. Mm. Uh, later, you'd never want to be miscast in something or do the wrong thing because that's not ultimately going to reflect well. So there's the way of looking at it mm. in that way. And certainly now I've had done some jobs that have been so creatively fulfilling that I've actually come to a place where I'm like, oh, any disappointment, knowing that it would ultimately lead to this was worth it because if that thing that I had wanted had worked out, I wouldn't be here mm. now. So there's looking at it through that perspective, for sure. It's kind of where I'm at at this point. Um, and then I guess it's also like, you kind of have to let yourself just ride the wave and you feel those disappointments and then you pop back out of them. And it's, it's a funny thing to feel like you feel the down and then how quickly you'll you get another audition or you're onto something else and you don't even remember the thing anymore that you thought you cared about so much. One of the, one, something that a lot of people haven't talked about yet, but I would like you to talk about is Schitt's Creek. Oh yeah. You wrote an episode of Schitt's Creek. What was that all about? Um, so I was a writer for the first two seasons of Schitt's Creek. They had their writer's room here. And I was just, um, I had written a pilot with a friend. I started, you know, I was more focused on acting when I first came to LA, but would try and dabble in writing when I could. And then as I became friends with more writers, the process got like screenwriters, the process got demystified for me. It's kind of saw, I was like, okay. And then I was often being asked to read things and give notes on things. And then I had one friend who, she's a really established showrunner. Um, and she kind of took me aside and was like, this thing you think you're just doing for fun is actually a skill set that you have and you should explore. And it was such a important moment for me to have someone champion me in that way. So I wrote a pilot with another actress and we ended up selling it um, to 20th Century. Ooh, what's it called? Oh, it was called the, it never had a title and it never got made, but it was optioned, which was very exciting. What was, for us. What was the premise? Um, it was actually um, about two former friends who end up back in their home, small hometown, not unlike Hudson, um, <laughs> at the same time and having to work through their stuff. It, we were really, we had done a pilot together where we'd been cast as best friends and that's how we met. And I felt like, I was like, you know, we're never going to get cast as friends again unless we write it ourselves. So let's just write something to stay sane in between auditions. And then it actually sold. So that was just a big vote of confidence. And then um, Schitt's Creek was happening. And a, my friend who uh, was a writer was on the show and had to leave and they were looking for someone else. And she said, you know, I'm just going to give them your name. It's good for you to be on their radar. You might not have, you know, they, you know, just go in for an interview and they'll read your, what you your sample. And 
I went in for an interview with uh, Eugene and Dan and it went well. And then at the end of the interview, and I don't think this is really <laughs> commonplace, but they just said, do you want to come in the room and see what it's like? So I said, okay. So I just went in the writer's room and I started contributing right away. And it, which isn't also normally like, you know, you'd probably sit back, but it was just a natural click and it was, it went really well. And it was like three in the afternoon on a Friday. And I kind of, I always say I felt like George Costanza or something. So it's like, well, if I just stay, does that mean that I have this job? And then at seven o'clock when we were leaving, Eugene was like, okay, so I'll see, I'll, we'll see you Monday. And um, yeah, it was really one of those funny things where things really aligned in a, in a cool way. So I got to write on the show for two seasons. Now, here's the weird, you know, six degrees thing, obviously, is that Dan was a host on MTV. Yes. And you were on Much Music. So was it the same time? Did he know you from Much Music? He was, I think, maybe a year after. So we weren't quite at the same time because I think MTV was just starting up as I was leaving. But we, we knew of each other. And we had some friends in common. And I do remember when he first moved to L.A. a few years before Schitt's Creek. Um, I knew him through some people and I invited him to join a book club I was in and he joined. Oh, that's so smart. So we didn't know each other. Yes. Okay. I'm going to yeah. make a note to self, invite people to book clubs for potential <laughs> jobs. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. Um, not only have you given me inspiration to invite people to my book club, which by the way, has been going for, 17 years. Um, wow. Okay. Ours, you, ours was like a year long. Okay. Well, I'm older than you. That's why <laughs> it will eventually catch up to me as you seem to do. Um, there's a few things <laughs> that you mentioned uh, during our conversation that I, I just want to highlight because I think that they're really useful bits of advice. One of the things is you had this little epiphany about people judging you, and you then said to yourself, oh, nothing is about you. It's always about the other person's perception and that you were so happy that you learned it at a young age. And I think that is a really useful thing for people to understand when people jump on you with negativity to understand that it usually is an issue that they're perceiving. It's their perception that comes from within. So. You know, as I said at the top of the show, this is certainly a conversation about your life, but it is also taking some of the things that you've said and to highlight them. And so we can apply them to our, um, to our own lives. You also mentioned about doing interviews and that they became great when you activated your curiosity and you became more you and you connected to yourself. And that was also in how you approached much in general. And I would, again, venture to say that in life, when you activate your curiosity and tap and question what it is that you love to do in life, et cetera, answers will appear. And also we are most happy when we are our authentic selves, when we show people who we are and do what it is that we really love to do. And don't fear judgment, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the last thing you said that uh, I just loved, which was 
what you've learned doing all these auditions. And you said, I learned that this may be hard, but that it will get easier. Oh, it's when you moved. And you said, I knew that it would be hard, but that it would get easier. Because you had had that experience moving from Hudson to Toronto. And again, I, I would say that goes pretty much, uh, that's true for pretty much everything. That when you first start it, it's really hard. And then three mm -hmm. months in, you go, oh, this is easy. I can do this. And uh, for people to remember that, that, that. Yeah, just get through that. Just Come. get, just get through it. Yeah. So before we wrap up, um, uh, someone uh, from Oakville, his name is Mike. He's one of the listeners of the show. And he asked, who is going to interview me? Erica, who's going to interview you? are like a VJ from Much Music. And I was like, no one's going to interview me. Then I thought it would be fun if each person who I interview, since you're all interviewers, to ask me one question. So I'm going to put you on the spot. And Amanda, is there one thing that you would like to ask me? So many things. Okay, I have to pick one. Um, I would say because you've had such... Um, what, looking at, at, at your career and what you do and all the different things you do, a varied career. And I feel like from my perspective, it looks like you have the parts of what you do that are outward and in the public eye and a speaker and an interviewer and facilitating conversations, that kind of role. But then you also have this other side as a creator and a writer. And I kind of wondered, how do you, do you even, are you, is it something you're conscious of when you're switching gears from being in this public position to then going and writing the things that you write, is it, a, is it something that you have to kind of consciously shift in your own energy or in your own approach? Or is it all just flow back and forth easily? Well, as a creator, I, it lights me up like nothing else. I love, I'm, I'm an introvert and I love to make things happen. I love to, I love to work. I love it. I love creating. And I like taking something or nothing and turning it into something. But there's another piece of me being an introvert where I get to have meaningful conversations like this one, for example, or my time on Much Music, I felt was very meaningful. I wasn't funny on Much Music. I know people might have laughed at me, but <laughs> that wasn't because I was trying to be funny. I'm pretty uh, earnest. So it's, I'm still creating. I'm creating ideas and thoughts and conversations. I'm really not good at parties because I can't do small talk because that's not making anything. So it's the same person. It's just two different sides and two different skills. But for me, the art of interviewing is similar to the art of writing because I do a lot of research I plan the conversation and I think about it and I try to make an interview or a conversation, a little mini work of art, which is hopefully what we did here today. Oh, I love that. So thank you so yeah. much, Amanda. It was so great to finally meet my Hudson, my, the person, the, this person from Hudson, like what are the chances, what are the chances? It's so strange. <laughs> Random and crazy, small place. especially for me, yeah. where there was like so little art in Hudson when I was growing up. It was a small town 
And, um, but I guess, cause it was close to Montreal. We, I was, uh, yeah. I was able to access all the art there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of that perfect, um, removed enough to be a little more peaceful than being in the city, but you're not cut off either. Uh, Amanda, you need to go have your baby. So thank you again <laughs> so much for, for giving me an hour of your time. And I want to remind everyone who's listening that uh, if you would like to be a part of this conversation, there's a phone line that you can call and you can uh, leave a question for any of the guests. You can certainly share memories of your times on Much Music. And you can also give us feedback on the show, what you're enjoying, uh, what you'd like us to add. Um, because really, if not for you, there would be no one listening to the show. And then why would I do a show? So the phone number <laughs> is 833-972-7272. I'll give you that number again. You can write it down or put it into your phone and uh, give us a call. It's basically leaving a message for me. The number is 833-972-7272. So call in and give me a give me a call. And if you're not a phone type person, I get it. You can also reach me on all my social platforms. I'm kind of obsessed with living online. You can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, the Erica M Facebook page. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm all over the place. Just search Erica M on each of those platforms and you'll find me. Thank you again to Amanda for agreeing to be part of the show. Um, and especially knowing that you could have gone into labor at any minute, but that would have been great for the podcast. And I will see you next week. Not you, Amanda. Maybe you can have oh, me. You could have me on in the hospital <laughs> after giving birth. Uh, for those of you listening, I'll see you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.